Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, as we open your word, uh, Father, I just pray that you would help our hearts to set aside the distractions of the morning. God, that uh, we would remain focused on what you have to teach us. God, help me to follow the leading of the Spirit and to, to speak and to teach according to your word, Lord, I pray. And God, I do pray uh, in particular for a uh, special request, uh, a young two-year-old right now who is in, uh, experiencing brain surgery right now, removing a tumor from her. Uh, her name's a friend of a family friend of her. And God, I just pray that you would guide and direct the doctor's hands. And Lord, that you would strengthen this young life. And God, that through this, uh, your name would be lifted high. And that we would be reminded of your goodness even during difficult times. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, I want to just ask you a question or... Um, I guess begin with, with this, these, this statement, this observation, is the fact is that we live in a world that is filled with choices, don't we? Uh, filled with choices. This morning, you've made a lot of choices even already, haven't you? Uh, you've made the choice just simply to get out of bed. You made the choice of what to wear. You made the choice of, of what to eat. You made the choice of whether or not you're going to come to church this morning, didn't you? And I would say that was probably a good choice, hopefully a good choice. I know it's a good choice that you made today. But there's all types of other choices that we're confronted with. If you go to a restaurant, right, there's this big menu board in front of you that presents all types of choices right there before you. Uh, I've spoken to a number of students who you are going to be having Christmas vacation come up, right? How, can, I, can I get a witness for Christmas vacation? How many of you are excited about that? And I've asked some of you young students, uh, I've said, how are you going to invest your time, right? You're presented with a choice here during Christmas vacation of how are you going to invest your time over these next couple of weeks. Maybe those of you who are seniors in high school, you're trying to make the decision as far as what college to go to or what to do after you graduate, maybe entering into a trade or a job or going to school, lots of choices. Um, this week, I went to Home Depot, and uh, at Home Depot, right, we know that in the paint section, Katie, who works there, right, uh, there's lots of choices, more choices than you and I could ever imagine in the paint section, but this week, I was shopping for a, a toilet seat, and little did I know how many options and choices there were. I stood there almost, uh, almost debilitated a little bit as I looked, and I, there were like over 40 or 50 toilet seat options, and I looked and I thought, for such a simple task, clearly I need to gather some more information before I make this decision, right? Life is filled uh, with all of these choices, a constant need to make a choice. And Scripture also presents to us a lot of opportunities to make choices, doesn't it? But thankfully, the choices seem to be a little bit more limited, uh, oftentimes between one of two choices. We can either choose wisdom or we can choose foolishness. We can either choose the path of life, we can choose the path of death. We can choose to be a light in the world, or we can choose to join in with the darkness of the world. We can choose to have faith, or we can choose to live according to fear. We can choose joy, or we can choose to be filled with sorrow. 
right? All throughout life, all throughout Scripture, we're presented with choices that need to be made. This morning, here in our text, in chapter 6, ending in verse 7, Lord willing, with our sermon this morning, Micah is going to provide us with the right choice to make when it comes to living in a dark world. In fact, let's go ahead, if I may, let's go ahead and just look there at verse 7. Okay, we're going to cheat just a little bit, if, if you don't mind. But we find there at verse 7, where Micah says, he makes this decision in chapter 7, verse 7. Look what Micah says. He says, but as for me. In other words, Micah says, this is what the rest of the world is doing. Micah says, but as for me, but as for me, this is the choice that I am going to make. He says, I am going to watch and hope for the Lord. I will wait for God, my Savior, and my God will hear me. Right, so Micah presents to us this choice to make. He says, but as for me, regardless of what the rest of the world is doing, here's the choice I'm making today. And that leads us then to the big idea for our, for our sermon this morning. It's this, is that we are going to be encouraged to choose hope by watching and waiting for the Lord. Choose hope by watching and waiting for the Lord. Now let's go ahead and, and let's make our way back to verse 1 of chapter 6. There's actually going to be four points this morning, so you get a little bit of a bonus uh, today here with the, with the fourth point. But, but we uncover here in these early verses, again, I guess I have to remind you, over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've had several, a couple of sermons that have been filled with hopefulness, haven't we? Right? Good news. He's, Micah's filled with a lot of doom and gloom. But in, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, he gave us some hopeful words. Now in chapter 6, he's going to enter back into some difficult words of judgment. He's going to enter back into some, some difficult words of, of God calling down his verdict on the people. But again, in verse 7 of chapter 7, which is where we'll land this morning, we're going to have this hopeful choice that, that Micah presents to us. Well, first we find here that in, uh, in verses 1 through 8, we see God's verdict, all right? We see God's verdict presented to us. As we move through the, these verses, what we're going to see is we're going to follow the, the careful interaction uh, between, between essentially God uh, and a, in a courtroom scene. That's kind of what we have taking place here. We see there in verse 1 where where the instruction is given, stand up, plead my case before the mountains, let the hills hear what you have to say. In a sense, all right, God is presenting his case against the people of Israel. He's presenting his case against the people of Judah. In a sense, Micah is serving as the lawyer for the Lord. And then the people, all right, the people of Israel, they are, they are the defendants. They're the, they are the accused. And so what we have taking place here, again, it's more of a courtroom scene. And in verse 1, we see God is calling the courtroom to attention. So look there in your Bibles. This is what we're told. In verse 1, it says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. All right, so, so God is instructing the people. All right, pay attention to what's taking place here. Then in verse 2, we, we see that the witnesses are called to the stand. And, and notice here in verse 2, 
the instruction that is given. It says, hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against his Israel. If you might picture the courtroom drama, basically it's Micah the lawyer, right, who's, who's presenting God's case before the people. He's calling the witnesses, and you notice who are the witnesses in this situation? The witnesses that are being called to stand are the mountains and the foundations of the earth. Now, for us, this seems to be a puzzling approach, right? Why would, why would God call the mountains and the foundation of the earth to be witnesses? But the Israelites would have understood the significance because we understand that when God made the covenant with Moses way back in Deuteronomy, you might remember God making that covenant, offering the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai. When God makes that covenant with his people through Moses, in Deuteronomy, what God did is God called the mountains and the foundations of the earth. He said the mountains and the foundations of the earth will be witnesses to whether or not you hold to this covenant. So in a sense, as Micah calls to the attention of the mountains and the foundations, what he's doing he's, is he's dipping all the way back to Deuteronomy. And he is saying God has held his end of the covenant deal here Micah says, we're going to call the mountains and the foundations of the earth and ask them, have you, O Israel, held your end of the deal? And so again, so we see the, the mountains are, are, are called to attention. And then in verses 3 and 5, God is presenting his indictment against the people in these verses. Here's what God says. He says, my people, what have I done to you? Again, this is God speaking to the people. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me, God says. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, Remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Don't you remember your, your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? Again, like a good courtroom dra drama, God is, is asking the people, the defendants, the questions. He's asking them questions. He says, what have I done to you? And how have I burdened you? It seems that the people of Judah had grown weary in being God's people. It seems that the people had become bored and in a sense burdened with serving the Lord. And so God is asking the Israelites for evidence of his failure to uphold his covenant with them. God is requesting justification. He's saying, what right do you have to turn from me, haven't I followed through with my commitment? I think we need to make sure that we're not misinterpreting the tone of God's indictment here. Right? Sometimes when we think about the courtroom drama, we think of, of the lawyer getting in the defendant's face and asking really hard questions with a raised voice. But what we see here is, is the tone of God as he is speaking here through the prophet Micah is, is a personal Tone And it's a very passionate, it's passionate language that resembles a loving father who's pleading with his children. 
It resembles a loving husband who's calling out to his wife. This is a loving God who's calling out to the chosen people who have rejected him. Church, I wonder if we too maybe are like the Israelites. I think I can answer the question. I think the answer is probably yes, right? And I wonder, have you grown weary or do you ever grow weary of following the Lord? Does it ever become tiresome to you to live for the Lord and walk in his ways? Are there ever times when maybe the, the ways of the world seem more appealing and exciting? Has it become a burden to love the Lord your God? Has it become a burden at times to love your neighbor? Do you ever find it easier to trust in your own efforts rather than hold on to and trust in God's promises, right? I mean, truth be told, if, if we were standing in this courtroom drama that we see here in chapter 6, truth be told is that we would be just as guilty as the Israelites were. You see, in verses 4 and 5, God is bringing up just a few of the countless examples of his steadfast love and his faithful commitment to his people, right? When we find ourselves drained of passion for the Lord, when we find ourselves stumbling in, in our obedience to the Lord, what we need to do is we need to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us, of his saving acts toward us, of his care, of his constant care and concern for us. And God, in this verse, in these verses, he's presenting to them examples of his faithfulness, right? The first example where, is there where he says that he delivered them from the Egyptian slavery, and then he goes on and he says, not only did I deliver you out of Egyptian slavery, but I also provided godly leaders to them. He, he provided three siblings. He provided Aaron. He provided Moses. He provided their sister Miriam. What a, fam what a heritage of faith that must have been, right? I mean, I think we could probably learn a little something from, from, from their parents, right, on, on how to pass on the faith to their children. God says, I provided these these to lead you, guide and direct you. God goes on in, in, in reference to Balak and Balaam. We see that God turned cursing into blessing. In Numbers chapter 22 through 24, you'll find this account that's referenced where Balak, the king of Moab, he hired Balaam to go and curse the Israelites. But God would not allow Balaam to do that, the false prophet. He would not allow Balaam to curse the Israelites, but instead he turned his curse, these curses into blessings for the Israelites. And so we see how God was constantly going before the Israelites, watching out for their best interest. And he was even turning curses into blessings for them. We also see where God mentions there, he says that God delivered them not only from the lands of slavery and wandering, but he, he delivered them into the promised land. And that's where the phrase where he mentions from Shittim unto Gilgal, it alludes to the crossing of the Jordan River, reminding the people how God fulfilled his promise of taking them out of slavery, out of the wilderness, and giving them and leading them into the promised land. And so we see that God is present, he continues to present this indictment before the people. And then in verses 6 and 7, what we have here is the people then attempt to respond in defense to God's indictment. Look there, starting in verse 6 and into verse 7. Here's, what, here's, how, here's how the people respond. 
with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Should I come to him with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see, having been presented with God's indictment, having been now found guilty in char- as charged with their, in their sin, as often is the case when we deal with a guilty conscience, we try to identify, right, what do I need to do to make the situation better? Right? What, what religious activity, how, how can I make it up to you? Have, have you ever found yourself when you've sinned against another person, you come to them and you say, okay, what do I need to make this right, need to do to make this right? And that's, that's what the people are doing here. They looked at God and they said, we are guilty. You are, you are, you are correct. We are guilty. And, and now what they're saying is what religious activity do I need to enter into in order to appease you? Right? Men and women are always trying to get back into the good graces of God with some type of outward religious service or spiritual activity, right? Do you ever find yourself trying to do that? God, what do I need to do? Do I need to serve a little bit more at church? Do I need to dig a little deeper in my pocketbook to make you happy? And you'll notice here the people even say, do I need to give my firstborn son to appease you. And what they're doing is they're dipping into the, 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 the false worship of the idol worship of, of many of those who lived around them where they were required. Those who offered these, who, who worshiped these false gods, they were required to give their children in sacrifice to these idols and to these false gods. And so they said, do we need to be like them? The people say, Lord, what do you want more of? More offerings? You want more rams? How about olive oil? Will that make you happy? God's response to the people, though, is this. God says, I don't want more of your stuff. I just want more of you. God says, I don't want more of your stuff. I just want more of you. He says, keep your rams, keep your olive oil, Keep your children, God says, but give me your heart. God's instruction then is to trust him in obedience and to walk with him in humility. God is saying, give me your undivided faith and your complete devotion. You see, the the Israelites, their failure wasn't in their religious activity. But their failure ultimately was to trust God in their heart. They failed to walk with God in humility. And and because they failed to walk with God in humility, it caused them to mistreat their neighbors, to mistreat other people. And and this is where now we find ourselves here in verse six, in verse eight, rather. Right. This is this is one of those popular verses. I mean, even as a church a few years ago, we we slapped it on the back of a T-shirt for us all. Right. Verse 8, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, what does it say? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God's desire for us is not more religious activities, but God's desire is for an authentic faith. 
God's desire is for a people who love him. And because of their deep love, they desire to be like him and how they treat other people. I mean, in a very real sense, this verse, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, is a summary of the entire Old Testament law. It's a very similar summary that you might remember Jesus giving when Jesus was asked, oh, great teacher, right? What's the greatest, what's the greatest of the commandments of the Old Testament? Which of these should we focus on first? And Jesus there in Matthew 22, Jesus' reply is this. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. And what is that second one? We know that, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what is God saying? Here in Micah chapter 6, verse 8 Right? God's verdict is you are guilty. What are you guilty of? You're guilty of not loving me. You're guilty of not trusting me. And because you've failed in your love for me, because you've failed and you've trust for me, you've become self-centered and you've carried that out against the other people. You've taken advantage of the, of the poor. You've oppressed the people. You've only sought to gather up worldly wealth for your own interests. And so Micah tells us the same thing. Love God and love your neighbor. He tells us the same thing in these words. Walk humbly with the Lord and do justice and be kind to your neighbor. You see, when we give more of ourselves to God, we will find ourselves giving more of ourselves to our neighbors. And that's what God wants more of. That is what pleases him. That is the overflow of our relationship with with God. That's what true religion looks like. Loving our neighbors is the fruit of our faith. It's the fruit of our love for God. To walk humbly with God is a surrendered life. It's a posture of faith. A humble posture before the Lord then will, pre- will, will present to others, it, it, will, it will provide for others a humble posture to our neighbors, and it will lead us into a life of serving our neighbors. Church, if you want to get a good, if you want to have a good gauge on, on where you're at and walking with the Lord, Ask your neighbors. Ask the needy person. Ask the poor and the oppressed. You see, when we sin against our neighbors, it is first and foremost a sin against God. And so God's indictment, right? God's verdict is you're guilty. The people say, what do you want more of, God? I'll give you my firstborn if I have to. And God says, no, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in more of you. And when you give me more of yourself, you'll you'll treat your neighbors rightly. You'll do justice. You'll love mercy. You'll love kindness. Well, then this takes us then, all right? All right, God calls down his verdict. But then in verses 9 through 16, God calls down his judgment. In verse 9, God directly, addresses, God directly addresses the people of Jerusalem with a message of coming discipline and judgment. We see there in verse 9, the listen, and this is Micah. Again, he's calling out this judgment. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. 
Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house and the short ephah, which is accursed? God asks the people if they really think he is going to let them get by with their sin. Right? God calls down the verdict and God says, I'm not, I, I'm not going to turn a blind eye to this. I've, you've been warned. You were instructed to uphold to this covenant. Right? We, we see here is that God is telling the people is that your sin has consequences. And I think this is a good reminder for us is that sin, even in our day, has consequences, right? You will eventually reap what you sow. And this is the people of Judah are now reaping the sin that they have sown, right? No matter how smooth the sailing waters of sin might be seem in your life today, right? No matter how, how smooth those sailing waters are, you will eventually discover that there's a waterfall downstream coming your direction, over the Thanksgiving holiday, my family, we were able to, to go and uh, see Niagara Falls, right? No better time to travel to Buffalo, New York than in the winter. And, uh, and we were able to go see Niagara Falls, and these are powerful falls. And if you go upstream from the Niagara Falls, there are signs that warn you, you need to get out of your boat, okay? You, you need to dock your boat now. Because if you don't dock your boat now, even though it might seem nice and beautiful and pretty and everything might seem to be going well, there are, there are some pretty magnificent waterfalls in your future. So if you don't heed this wisdom, you're headed for trouble. And I feel like as, as, as we see these instances in, in Scripture, that we too should take that warning. That Micah's warning should be a warning to each of us. Now, we know that for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we're relieved to know that from a relational perspective with God, our sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, right? We don't have to offer our firstborn son because God has offered his only begotten son in our place. And so we understand that relationally and from an eternal perspective, yes, our sin has been paid for because we believe that to be true. But that reality does not void the reality of sin's consequences in this world in which we live. That we are still instructed to pursue holiness. To turn from sin. Because we'll reap, we'll reap from the sin that we sow. And the fact of the matter is, is that if God is just and good, which he is, then... God will respond to sin. God will not turn a blind eye to sin. And, and we see this here in verses, uh, starting there in verse 9, right? Let's go ahead and pick it up uh, there in verse 11, where, where God then provides some, some clear, um, he, he provides some examples of how he's responding to this sin. Verse 11, he says, shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights they have been they had been mistreating other people in the marketplace they had been kind of tweaking the scales a little bit in their favor you know i i thought about this as in our vegetable stand along the road that we've had uh, this past summer we do have a scales out there and there's this incredible knob <laughs> that you can turn that can tweak the scales a little bit and i could I could, I, I thought about this. I didn't, know. I didn't think about doing it, but I thought about this illustration. But like, if I wanted to, I could tweak that knob just a little bit to make the zucchini appear to be a little bit heavier than it, than it actually is. And so they would 
owe me a little bit more than $1.50 per pound, right? I'd, I'd line my pockets with a few more quarters from that day's sale. And that's what's taking place in this situation. He said that they had tweaked the scales in their favor. He goes on then in verse 12. He says, your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. Verse 13, he says, therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. He says, you will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. He says, you have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. You see, in the final verses of chapter 6, God's judgment is pronounced. He begins chapter 6 with his, his verdict, with the courtroom scene, and now he's calling out his judgment. The people who have failed to obey and to live according to the covenant that God established with Moses on Mount Sinai, the mountains and the foundations of the earth, they, they have proven to be a witness to Israel's sin. And because of their sin, they have invited God's discipline. And now God says, you will be carried away into exile. It's bad news. It's dark news, isn't it? And now moving on into chapter 7, we notice Micah's response. And what is his response? His response is a response of lament. You might remember all the way back in chapter 1, Micah responded to the sin of the people in lament. Again, Micah laments over the sinful and the sad state of the people. He laments over their coming judgment. He begins there in verse, verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, woe is me. It's as if Micah is absorbing the pain on behalf of the people. We see that as Micah walks the city streets, he realizes how deeply saturated the people are in their disobedience. He sees how deeply saturated they are in their self-reliance and their idolatry. He sees how deep they are in their sensual sin. He sees how much they are oppressing the people and how much they are, they are practicing injustice toward the weak and the powerful. And in fact, let's go ahead and read his lament. This is Micah's lament there in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7. Just listen to these words and, and, and picture Micah walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Woe is me, or, or verse 1, what misery is mine. He says, I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaming of the vineyard, but there's no cluster of grapes to eat. He says, there's none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Right? He's walking through these streets and he's, he's looking for another righteous person, someone who is trusting in the Lord, who's holding fast to his covenant, who's believing in his name. And he says, I have a great desire to find at least someone. He says, like me going out to the berry patch and, and wanting some blackberries and having a craving for some blackberry pie, but I can't find a single berry on the bush. 
He says it's not there. He goes on. He says, verse 2, the faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Their hands are skilled in doing evil. The rulers, the governing rulers, they demand gifts. The judge is willing to accept bribes. The powerful people, they dictate what they desire. And they're all conspiring together. They all got the backroom deals going on. He says the best of them, <laughs> look at this, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a thorn hedge. Have any of you ever been running in the woods? Maybe in a pair of shorts, maybe with short sleeves on. And you, unbeknownst to you, you run through a, 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 a patch of thorns. Have you ever done that? Right? This is the picture. You, you run through there like, ouch, ouch. And, and you look and you've got cuts and scrapes all over. He says, the best person in this city, I wouldn't even, I, I would rather run through a briar patch than have to deal with them. He says, he says even the most upright person, they're worse than a, a hedge of thorns. He says, the day God visits you has come. That's judgment has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm, now is the time of your confusion. And if we think back to earlier in the book of Micah, it said that they loved what was evil and hated what was good. That's the confusion. They don't even know what's right the difference from right and wrong. They don't even know the difference from their right hand between their right hand and their left hand. He says, now is the time of your confusion. He says, do not trust a neighbor. The neighbor that, you're, that you should have been loving because you loved God first and you were supposed to love your, love your neighbor. Now, because you've failed in loving God, you can't even trust your neighbor. He says, put no confidence in a, in a friend. He says, even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lip, lips. You can't even trust your own wife. You can't even trust your own husband in this situation. He says, for a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. And Micah is lamenting this situation. He is lamenting the, the breakdown of the spiritual and social fabric of the people. It has all fallen to ruin. Church, I think in many ways we can share in this lament that we are experiencing the same kind of decline even in our time. Morality, leadership, families are crumbling. But I think you need to notice this. It's not just a meaningless de decline. One, comment, one commentator said it, it's, it's part of God's judgment. For God has decreed that whenever a society departs from him, the, the effects of that departure will be seen in every aspect of life in that society. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, the apostle Paul says, he says that once men and women give up on God... Once we stop glorifying God, once we stop giving thanks to God, God then gives us over to our own sins and our own perversions. 
We find ourselves hating what is good and loving what is evil as a society and our minds grow in their depravity. And so we see almost as a means of judgment on the people who have turned from the Lord. God says, if that's what you want, here you can have it. Again, this lament, it's dark, it's dreary. The judgment is coming for the people. But here we find ourselves at verse 7. Because Micah makes this incredible decision. He makes the choice. He says, but as for me. Micah here in verse 7, as he walks through the city streets, he makes a decision to not lose hope. Micah makes the decision to hope. He reaches a turning point. He chooses not to focus on the darkness of the world, but instead he chooses to focus on the faithfulness of God. He lifts his eyes up to see the Lord, right? He, like the psalmist says, I lift my eyes up to where? To the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help comes where? From where? From the Lord. And so Micah makes this confident moment of, he has this confident moment of decision where Micah helps us to see that even when we live in the midst of, of, a, of a society, of a culture, that it can easily be reflected here in Micah chapter 7 and in chapter 6, a, a, a world that has left the Lord, has turned their back on the Lord. Micah says, I will not lose hope. Even in the darkest of days, church, when we continually fill our minds and our hearts with worldly news and propaganda, we forget God's faithfulness, don't I? Don't we? Do you ever find yourself, man, I checked the news. The first thing I did this morning was I checked the news. And I thought, Michael, you are such a hypocrite. <laughs> are you getting ready to preach this sermon on don't give up hope? And yet here you're checking the news and you're starting your day off depressed and discouraged. But we tend to do that, don't we? But Micah says, rather than checking the news, rather than becoming depressed or discouraged, Micah's hope is this, to watch and wait. Do you see it there in verse 7? This might even be a verse for those of you who enjoy marking in your Bible. You might want to highlight this. He says, but as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior my God will hear me. There are times when we wonder if God is still able. There are times when we question God's perfect plan. There are times when we, we doubt whether God truly cares for us. There are times in our lives when we hesitate to believe God's or to trust in God's timing. There are times when we forget God's faithfulness, don't we? There are times when we are just tempted to surrender to culture's influence and to just give in, but Micah's declaration encourages us to trust that God is still on the throne. Micah says, but as for me, I'm going to believe that God is still able. Micah says, but as for me, I'm going to believe that there is a day coming when, when God will fix all that is broken. Micah says that, but as for me, I'm going to believe that there is a day coming when God will heal the brokenhearted. There is a day coming when God will wipe away every tear. There's a day coming when our mourning will turn into dancing. 
There's a day coming, Micah says, but as for me, I believe that God, there's a day coming when God will breathe new life into dry bones. There's a day coming when God will deal rightly with injustice. There's a day coming when God will lift up the oppressed. That's, Micah is making that choice. He's saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get stuck in my lament. Instead, I'm going to let that lament point me to the one who is still yet to come. And so he says, but as for me, what does he do? Then he says, I will watch and I'll wait. This is our confident hope, our confident hope. And we, we experience that confident hope in watching and waiting. These are not passive verbs, but instead these require active participation and anticipation through prayer, encouragement with other, with one, other believers, and study of God's word. Look what the psalmist tells us here in Psalm 5, verse 3. The psalmist said this, that in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, Lord, I lay my requests before you. And what does he say? He says, I wait expectantly. Church, can I just encourage you, if we're going to make the decision like Micah makes here, to not be discouraged by the, situ- the circumstances of this world, but instead we're going to wake up in the morning to encourage you to join with Micah and to say, God, help me today to begin my day with an attitude of watching and waiting. Watching and waiting. Lamentations tells us that the Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to do what? To wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Can I tell you something? Learning to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, that, my friends, is a display of trust. That's a display that you believe God is in control. Or Paul's instruction to us in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says this, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And verse 14 concludes with these words, Because we wait in this world, we don't just sit idle, but now we are eager to do what? To do good to our neighbors. And you understand, as we think back to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, to do justice, right? To love mercy, to live out in kindness as I walk humbly with the Lord to love God and love our neighbors, that when we learn to trust in God in that way, when we watch and we wait, believing that he is returning, the same Christ child who, come, who came, who we celebrate in this season, he is indeed coming again. And church, that's what we're watching for. That's what we're waiting for. The old Micah, they were anticipating his first appearance as the Messiah. As the Christ child, we now on this side of the cradle, on this side of the cross, we are watching and waiting and anticipating his second return, his his coming again when he will come as that shepherd king, as that conquering king that we talked about last week. And, And we don't just watch and wait idly, but we watch and wait eager to do good. 
eager to love justice, eager to live out kindness and mercy to our neighbors. So we see that the secret to faithful living, what's the secret to faithful living? In dark times, Micah says this, to make the decision to watch and wait for the Lord. And then he ends verse 7 with such an, it should be such a comforting declaration. He says, I know my God will hear me. That God hears the cries of those who watch and wait. And I hope, church, we will join with Micah in this endeavor, watching and waiting. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the example of Micah. We thank you uh, that you have preserved these words for us over all of these years that you might teach us and train our hearts. And uh, so, Lord, I just ask that now your Holy Spirit would help us to apply these truths to our lives and that, Lord, we would not grow discouraged. Uh, We would not grow weary in our well-doing, Lord, that we would not give up in living for you, that we would not be overwhelmed with discouragement or depression because of the state of the world in which we live, uh, Father, but that we, would, um, that we would find ourselves echoing Micah's words, but as for me, but as for us, we will watch and we will wait. And we look forward to Jesus' return and we thank you that we know and are confident that you hear us even now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.